Hi, it's Grace Cowan, and this is Frogmore Stew. Homelessness is defined as an individual or family who lacks a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence, such as those living in emergency shelters, transitional housing, or places not meant for habitation. In South Carolina, there are many agencies, both government-funded and privately funded, that are working to address this. Last year, the South Carolina Interagency Council of Homelessness released its State of Homeless Report. It showed that 13,399 people received homeless services in our state in 2021, which was an 18% jump from the previous year. We're seeing more uh, people who are elderly in our shelters, more folks struggling with disabilities. We're also seeing folks who are working and they're working generally at better wages than we've seen, but even those wages aren't enough to afford the housing in our community. Very often, it's a simple issue of you lost your job, you became ill, you had no money left over, and you couldn't pay the rent, and you're kicked out in the street. Stacy Deneau of 180 Place in Charleston is on the front lines of homelessness and housing in our state. She's a pragmatist and also a visionary. She began her role with 180 at a time when they nearly had to close their doors for good. But 19 years later, she's transitioned 180 Place from a volunteer-run homeless shelter to a housing services organization focused on best practices and proven solutions to ending homelessness and creating affordable housing. She's helped to create both Housing Court and Homeless Court, two new court structures that streamline court proceedings and see better outcomes for all parties involved. Her passion, energy, and knowledge is second to none, and I know you'll enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking to her. Let's get to the stew. Stacy, it's so great to have you on Frogmore Stew. Welcome. Well, thanks, Grace. Happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this because I think there are so many dimensions of what you do that we see every day, but we don't really think deeply about. In doing some research and talking to you and just knowing you over the years and understanding a little bit about what you do, there really are different types of homelessness, right? Could you speak to what those are and is there any one that is more common than the other? Sure. I think like any sort of state of being or situation, there are sort of degrees of homelessness and the basics of being homeless or the basic, the most simple definition is someone who lacks a permanent nighttime residence. That seems logical, but as we get into further really breaking that down and it is someone in more of an episodic situation where this is a temporary setback, short a paycheck, had to cover a bill and I'm going to rebound pretty quickly, or is someone more chronically homeless, which is probably the stereotype that everyone envisions. It's someone with a disability. The technical definition is really someone who has been homeless for 12 months or has had multiple experiences of homelessness over the past several years. The other key difference around someone who's chronically homeless versus, say, episodically homeless or in more of a transitional situation is that person has a disability. Okay, so in that first scenario, an episodic or temporary setback, is it rare for there to be 
a cycle of homelessness or are you less prone to go back into being homeless if you've experienced it once? So if we think about homelessness as a continuum or as a cycle, there really is sort of that immediate falling into homelessness and maybe you find yourself in a shelter, you get some services and you move back into housing and hopefully that never happens for you again. We do know that there are a percentage of people in our community and across the country that really are cycling in and out because the interventions are never strong enough or long enough to help them sort of break that cycle. So those people that are really cycling through homelessness, they're in and out of shelters, they're probably in and out of emergency rooms, we know they're in and out of jails, so that's the cycle that really needs to get broken. And, you know, that sort of lends itself to, okay, well, when we break the cycle, what does that look like? It's very individual, because that person is no longer experiencing homelessness, but for a community, what we're saying is, when someone becomes homeless, we have the resources mm-hmm. to move them back into housing, and we have the resources to help them never become homeless again. Right. So you can break the cycle for a person, but what we want is to break that cycle as a community. You just answered some of the questions, or maybe reactions is the better word, that many of us feel or have heard others say. Like, why would someone be homeless? There are shelters. Or Why doesn't that person have a job? They look perfectly capable, which I guess really simplifies what is actually a much more complex problem. I think it's easier for most people to comprehend situation being caused by something Mm -hmm. or by a behavior. So it may be easier for me to accept that someone is homeless because they have a mental illness or because they're addicted to drugs. When you really peel back the layers of individuals that we do when we're working with people, but also looking kind of across the, the, the body of research, the two mm-hmm. primary contributors to homelessness are lack of affordable housing and low wages. So is a, a drug addiction <laughs> or a mental illness a cause of homelessness or a symptom of becoming homeless? Right. And so when you start thinking about it in those terms, I think you humanize the issue. This isn't a choice. If I'm homeless, just getting a job at nine or 10 or $12 an hour, I still can't afford a place to live in most every community in this country. That's not unique to South Carolina. So I have a job and I'm still in the shelter. That is also sort of hard for the human mind to comprehend that contradiction. Like, well, I'm going to work, but I still can't afford rent or a place to live. It does become obviously much more complicated than simply get a job and you can pay your rent. And sort of to your point is that those two reasons of affordable housing or a lack of pay that affords you to afford housing, those are way more complicated issues for people to understand than that person has a drug addiction or that person has mental illness and there's a solution to how to fix that, right? But for affordable housing, that's such a conceptual thing of how to fix it that it's much more complicated to process that and understand that that's the reason. Right. And I think we all know or have been or have someone in our family or a relationship in some way, shape or form with somebody who has a mental illness, who has or has an addiction the cost for those situations aren't your housing. And so right. to say that your mental illness or your addiction or, or whatever factor has caused your homelessness, it does sort of oversimplify the issue. And, right. you know, I've been in this work for about 20 years now, and it started out sort of as a, a sarcastic response to the question of, so how do we fix homelessness? And it really boils down to the simplest answer is housing. Housing right. is the only thing that ends homelessness. We can move someone into a shelter, they're still technically homeless because they do not have a permanent fixed nighttime resident. They are off the street and they are safe. 
particularly if they're in 180 place, but they are still technically homeless. So it's simple to say housing ends homelessness and much harder to do. As you were saying, it's, it's a complicated issue is the, the issue of affordable housing. According to a University of Pennsylvania study, the number of people 65 and older who are homeless will nearly triple by the year 2030. And experts say the housing affordability crisis, along with high inflation, is just chipping away at older adults' fixed incomes. One thing that I find really fascinating is how some of our state front-facing laws are contributing to homelessness. So out of the top 50 cities ranking for evictions in the country, we have three cities in our state. Number one is North Charleston, South Carolina. Number eight is Columbia, and Charleston is number 32. Yes. Having the highest rate of eviction in the country is not something to be proud of. We're at the top of a list we don't want to be on at all. And the laws in South Carolina really do, as you said, favor the landlord. That's often the first resort in this state, not the last resort, because it's affordable. In some instances, if the landlord wins in eviction court, the tenant who's being evicted actually covers those court fees. So there's incentive almost to run to eviction versus disincentive to work through that in other ways. And in South Carolina, we don't have a right to counsel. Similar to if you were in a criminal court, you would have the right to an attorney, a public defender. You don't have that right when it comes to an eviction. So right there, the fight isn't fair because you're in a system that you don't understand. You don't understand your rights as a tenant, and you certainly are intimidated and scared and don't understand what's going on in court. And I also want to point out that I don't think anyone is blaming landlords, right? If you own rental property, you have bills to pay too, and you depend on the income from that rental property to pay those bills. So it's not choosing one side or the other. It's understanding that there needs to be even ground on which people stand when they have an issue regarding rent. Oh, absolutely. And statistically, we have seen when a tenant who's being evicted is represented in court by an attorney, the landlord is much more likely to walk away being made whole. Again, because you have a fair fight and you have an attorney who isn't in an emotional crisis, isn't facing, you know, their belongings being put out on the street, who understands a process and can really manage and maneuver and mediate through that situation. Even if Mm -hmm. you can't preserve the tenancy for that tenant, that landlord is much more likely to be made whole. So yeah, it's not to vilify landlords. They are, in many cases, particularly with the population we work with, are the heroes for ending homelessness because Mm -hmm. they are willing to work with clients who they know, based on the fact that a homeless organization or a service provider is working with that client, they're going to have other barriers. There are other renters who may be more appealing. So in many ways, you know, in the population we work with, our landlords are our biggest heroes. One thing that is also really important to understand is that if you have an eviction on your record, it is much more difficult to find housing in the future. So essentially, when that happens to someone, you're taking an already bad situation and making it much more difficult for them to be housed. And evictions are not something that are ever expunged. So if I have a series of speeding tickets, I can take a safe driver course or whatever and have the points off my license are restored or my insurance is made. And and essentially those speeding tickets go away. But an eviction, there's no way to ever, you could have one eviction 20 years ago, have been a good renter for the next 20 years, and that eviction is still on your record and can often be used against you. All things are being equal. 
this mm -hmm. tenant has an eviction, this tenant doesn't, I'm going to go with the tenant who doesn't have the eviction. So that follows you forever. So often what we see in housing court, when we do have an attorney involved representing that tenant, we may not be able to preserve that landlord-tenant relationship, but we could keep mm -hmm. the eviction off the record. So we agree to part ways. The landlord gets paid, gets made whole to the degree possible. The tenant moves on. This landlord doesn't have to deal with that tenant anymore, and that tenant moves on with a clean rental record. That's the sort of the best possible outcome, given the, the scenarios and the laws in which we have here in South Carolina. So Stacey, you mentioned this thing called housing court. How did that come about? Housing courts are very unique. Charleston and Columbia were pioneers a number of years ago, a system of amazing organizations coming together to actually petition the state Supreme Court to allow magistrate courts to set up housing courts. So essentially telling magistrates, because that's where evictions happen, you can organize your docket and your calendar and your sessions of court in a way that allows evictions to be heard all on the same day. So mm -hmm. as we were talking about being able to have tenants represented by an attorney, now legal aid providers can have either paid attorneys or volunteer attorneys sit in court on a given day and help through multiple eviction cases versus mm -hmm. prior to housing court, you may have one eviction on Monday and one on Wednesday and one on Thursday, and that makes it very near impossible to find volunteers or even legal aid providers who could be there through that process. So now the work is how do we roll that out beyond Columbia and Charleston? And Columbia right. and Charleston are serving as models for other states and other places that don't have right to counsel and some of the other challenges that we see here in South Carolina. And it helps people, right? Oh, by it's, the way, it's, yes. It don't has great that. outcomes. Yes. Yes. It has great yes. outcomes. And, you know, it's everyone tends to, when that process happens, it's, you know, the court administrators are happier, the people managing the dockets are happier. It's a much more efficient way of managing the court. So can you describe the difference between homeless court and housing court? So homeless court is something unique to the city of Charleston here in South Carolina. A number of years ago, the city recognized that there were a large number of people, primarily the same people, cycling through the city jail. They're being picked up mm -hmm. for minor violations, public urination or loitering or public intoxication. So really things that were more about surviving. Mm -hmm. If I don't have anywhere to use the restroom, we, there are no public restrooms, I'm I may get a ticket for public urination. So these were our low-level offenses that are gumming up the process, really bogging mm -hmm. down the system. And I'm already homeless. Now I've got a bench warrant. Now I'm facing fines. I'm sitting in jail. I can't do anything. It's just, again, back to that cycle. I'm just cycling through this process. So housing court allows a judge to grant someone who's been cited for these series of offenses the opportunity to not go to jail while they're waiting for their hearing and be connected to a service provider. So someone who's going to help them overcome their homelessness. Because the whole premise here is I wouldn't be doing these things in public if I had a home. I wouldn't be sleeping on a park bench if I had a home. Now you're connected with services. You have maybe a little bit more incentive to stay connected to those services. And when your hearing happens, it actually happens here at 180 Place in our conference room, not in a courtroom. You're represented by a legal aid attorney and Typically, you have a case manager or social worker there telling the judge what has happened, what you know, you've been able to overcome, you've maintained your job, you've maintained your housing, mm -hmm. whatever has happened, and all of your fines are dismissed. You know, All of the conditions of your quote-unquote arrest have been met, and you walk away without yet another blemish on your record. No one, I don't think, never expects or wants to be in a bad situation, but it's not the situation, it's how you handle it. I'm dealing with it, and I'm going to deal with it. 
Don't look at me being homeless. Look at me as a human being who has made mistakes and he's trying to get it together. You've read this story. There was an article in the New Yorker magazine in 2006 written by Malcolm Gladwell called Million Dollar Murray. And it essentially followed this man that lived in Reno who was homeless over, I think, 10 years and looked at the cost of homelessness. One of the things that came out of that that I found super interesting is that homelessness doesn't have a normal distribution. He calls it the power law distribution, meaning that 80% of the homeless were in and out really quickly of homelessness. But then there were the bottom 10% that were the people that lived on the street all of the time. And Mm -hmm. those were the people that had more mentally ill, physically disabled. Those are the people that you see sleeping on the sidewalk. And the premise of this was how much did it cost for the city to not do anything? And it came back that it cost a million dollars a year for the city to not do anything with Murray, which means like he'd go to jail, he'd get released from jail, he'd go to the hospital. And because he was living on the street and had all of these issues, his medical issues were bigger and more expensive, meaning more tests. And so those are very high charge hospital visits. The end of that story was you don't manage a social wrong, you end it. And they came up with this idea and then did a program, which I think you can speak to because I I think you have said to me, you've tried this, which is when you house people with a real bedroom and a bathroom and real housing that are in that 10%, then you essentially solve a big portion of the homeless problem. Do you feel like that's accurate? It is. You solve the most expensive. It might not be the largest number of people, but these are the most expensive people. When we talk about someone like a Murray and the services that they need to be successful and to to live a more fulfilling life, it often revolves around the, the term of art or the term of services, this permanent supportive housing. You hope it's not permanent. Maybe some people do overcome some of these barriers and can sort of graduate on. But the idea is that if someone is in permanent supportive housing, like a Murray, you're really reducing the use of publicly funded crisis services, which are the Mm -hmm. most expensive. So you're talking about hospitals, ERs, jails. So think about one ER visit when you don't have insurance, one ride in ambulance, and multiply that over this very small number of people, but they're using lots of publicly funded resources. There have been multiple studies across the country and what's the dollar amount? Is it a million dollars? Is it $4 million across these you know, 10 or 12 people in your community? What we do know is on average, it costs about $36,000 to manage someone while they're homeless. So that's mm-hmm. in and out of jail, in and out of hospitals, in and out of all those crisis services. That's just the dollars and cents of it. We'll put the humanity piece of it aside for the sake of conversation. Right. To put someone in supportive housing by comparison for a year, $36,000 to keep them homeless, $12,000 to keep them housed. You can do the math, that's on average. So now we've just saved this community and the likelihood that this person who is now housed, continue, even if they don't ever get health insurance or they don't right. ever have a way to pay to go to the doctor, they are more likely than not going to reduce the number of times they need to go to the ER. They're not falling down or getting beat up or whatever is happening to cause a head injury and they have to go to the hospital. So $36,000 to keep you homeless or $12,000 to get you housed and get the services you need. That's Mm -hmm. kind of a no-brainer. 
again, that, that affordable housing conundrum, it is harder to see the solution because the solution is so complicated. Well, there's an interesting line in the, the article that says the current philosophy of welfare holds that government assistance should be temporary and conditional mm -hmm. to avoid creating dependency. But the most complicated people to work with are those who have been homeless for so long that going back to the streets isn't scary to them. And so they need forever care, right? And forever care is not really how our government, particularly the South Carolina state government, sees social services working. Well, there are those of us who believe that housing is a basic human right. But that's a right. big leap for a lot of people. But the idea of certain people are worthy of housing and certain people aren't. And I think right. that's kind of getting at what you're, you're talking about. And if the way to keep you safe and secure and help you return to some level or maintain some level of good health is to permanently support you in housing. You know, there are some people who believe we should do that and there are others who don't. That is a, a societal issue that, that we do grapple with. But if you can't wrap your head around the humanity of it, wrap your head around the finances of it. And it is more expensive to keep you homeless, whether it's for a year or 30 years or 40 years, it is much more expensive to keep you homeless. After working all of his life, he never expected to end up in a tent city, let alone being homeless. He says life took a downward spiral after a divorce and illness in 2019. I was working at the time and I kept having really bad um, chest pains and I would, be, I would pass out. He ultimately had open heart surgery and recovered, but could not afford rent and had to live in his car. He recalls wanting to take his own life. I didn't want to live because it was just so hard to deal with. Maybe it's because it's so much easier for our brains to not individualize that person and see them as your sibling or your parent and, and really tug at our humanity. It's just so much easier to see the numbers. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can have the head and the heart, but, but really as a community, and when you're looking at how to allocate finite resources in every community, every police department will tell you they're underfunded and understaffed. They don't want to keep arresting the same people for the same things right. over and over again. But often we'll see, particularly in the case of someone who is chronically homeless and maybe suffering with an undiagnosed mental illness, or maybe it's been diagnosed, but they're not in active treatment. The right. only way to get them help is to go to jail or to go through the ER and then get to the jail. That's wildly expensive. Let's couple this person with an appropriate, safe, adequate place to live, and then provide them those supportive services to address those other issues. It's much more affordable. It's also something, one, about having enough space to put them in a town where we already don't have enough even affordable housing. And then two, understanding that it's not going to be this A plus B equals C outcome, right? Every situation is unique and there are going to be places where Dateline could come in and say, look how this is failing based on one or two cases. Well, I think, you know, in the recovery world, we accept that relapse is part of the recovery process, right? So if you accept that relapse is a part of being homeless, whatever that relapse may look like, and then you develop the systems to support people through those relapses and get them back to the preferred state and accept that it might happen once, it might happen 12 times, hopefully you eventually get those the outcomes. But again, like in everything else, those tend to be the outliers. Years ago when I started doing this work and trying to have an analogy to explain that, well, why does somebody want to live on the street? Well, why would somebody who was given an apartment trash the apartment to be kicked out back out on the street? 
It's that sort of learned behavior. And this is an old reference because I'm getting older every day, but the movie movie Castaway. Tom Hanks, he's on the island. He's talking to the volleyball. He's, you know, learning to, to cook and live on this island. He gets rescued. He's in the hotel room after he's rescued and he's sleeping on the floor because the bed was uncomfortable. Here in the homeless sphere, when life on the street becomes what you know and where you're comfortable, you behave to get the outcome that makes you the most comfortable. I feel confined when I'm in a shelter or I'm in my own apartment, but I was used to living in an encampment and I had 12 neighbors and we all cooked a dinner together. We all came out of our tents and had a fire in the middle of our encampment and we cooked dinner and talked and there was a sense of community. Now I'm in a part of town that I'm not familiar with. I'm in this great one-bedroom apartment. I have a TV, I have a phone, I have a bed, I can cook and clean for myself, but I am isolated. And my friends are still out on the street, so I'm going to go back out on the street because I miss that sense of community. I mean, they were just scratching the surface on the issues that someone who has been on the street or in an encampment or in a car for a long period of time are working to overcome, and we expect you to just do that on your own. Here's your apartment. No, this goes back to that forever support or that permanent support and supporting you through those times of relapse and helping you develop a new definition of what feels normal for you. How does this end? Because I feel like what we're doing is we're managing a problem, we're not fixing it. You are on the front end of fixing it. Housing court, homeless court, those are you know really good starts to it. But what do we have to do as a state to end this? We have to create more affordable housing Mm -hmm. and address wages. I think how you fix it is, if we're going to eradicate poverty, we could start there, but let's say we're not. So as long as we have people living in poverty, extreme poverty, we're going to have people falling into homelessness. Yes. Communities that are saying they have ended homelessness have the systems and the tools and the resources in place Mm -hmm. that when someone does become homeless, they are rebounded back into housing within 30 Mm -hmm. days and they never become homeless again. So that's Mm -hmm. how you end it. You don't end it by never seeing someone on the street. You recognize that there will be people who are going to fall into homelessness for whatever reasons, but you're not gonna let them linger and you're gonna make sure they have the support so it never happens again. I think in South Carolina, where we're talking about hundreds of people, not tens of Mm -hmm. thousands of people, it's fixable. It's just having the political will, having the tools, having the housing, having the resources for those supportive services is how we get there. We just have to target the resources in the right way. In our community, pick your town. Let's say we have 10 people who are, they're those frequent flyers. They're the ones that are in and out of jail, in and out of the hospitals. So now five of them aren't. We've got five of them in permanent supportive housing. They've, they've been stable for a year or two. We've now saved our community X. Take X that we saved in unfunded hospital visits and cycling in and out of that criminal justice system and reallocate those resources towards building and creating affordable housing or towards providing those supportive services. To me, that's how you retool and rebuild a system. If we're saving money because people aren't going to jail and the reason they're not going to jail is because they're in housing, then let's start doing more of that. Let's do more of the thing that's actually getting the result we want. Invest in housing, not just arresting people for these low-level homeless offenses. You hear people say, I don't want my tax dollars used for endless housing for people that could have a job. And the response to that is, it's actually a better use of your tax dollars to house someone to use those resources less that your other tax dollars are paying for, and those resources can be allocated better within those systems. And it makes your community better. You know, it's a moral obligation to take care of your neighbor, right? That's why we have community. 
Last question, Stacey. So when you're driving down the street and you stop at an intersection and there's someone asking for help with a cardboard sign, what do you do? I think that it ends up being such a personal choice because you have empathy. You want to help this person. You help in the way you can, when and where you can. I do not believe that if you give someone who is down on their luck and asking for that support that you are enabling them because Mm -hmm. whatever you're able to do for them on the side of the road is a a very quick temporary fix. We do hear the stories about these sort of panhandling rings. And I think a lot of this is urban myth where, oh, I can make more money panhandling and I go get in a, a big fancy car and then someone else comes out and takes my sign and it's just, we're just taking turns. I don't think that is prevalent. I do not think people are out begging for money because they have other options. You do what feels right for you in that moment, but you may have provided them a resource to get a good meal, a resource to, you know, if after a day of panhandling or or of getting money, you're able to go get a cheap motel room and have a place to sleep that night. That's some immediate relief for that person. And I don't think that can be undervalued. Stacy, this has been awesome. You are such a wealth of information and you are doing such awesome work. And I, I just, I feel like there's, there's so much more that we could talk about. So I do hope you'll come back sometime and we can catch up with you and see all the progress that you've made and really, really, truly making an immediate difference in this state. So cannot thank you enough for being with us. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. And as you probably picked up on, I could go on for hours. (laughs) It is a complicated issue. And we just, you know, we need more people passionate about the issue, but also true believers that we can fix this and and end homelessness for our communities and our our country. I truly believe that. Otherwise, I couldn't get up and come to work every day. So I appreciate your interest in the issue and also you giving me this time to explore it further. That's all this do for today. Talk to you next week. The Frogmore Stew Podcast with Grace Cowan is produced and directed by TJ Phillips with the Podcast Solutions Network. That's a place where I want to be.